Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 404, that's the wrong number, 87797 Eric, 87793-7425. I am here in body, not necessarily in mind this morning. I'm tired today, but that's okay. I will wake up with you guys. I've got coffee on IV. We're ready to go. And, you know, I want to begin somewhere I didn't really want to have to go, but I think we do need to go there to begin with. Uh, and uh, the issue is truth. And, and you know, we live in a day of Pontius Pilots everywhere. Everyone wants to know what is truth. And, and you've got your truth. I've got my truth. He's got his truth. She's got her truth. Hell, she may think she's a he. Uh, and, and that'll be her truth, uh, that, that she's now a he. Everybody's got their truth. But, you know, just so I'm, I actually take faith seriously. And I think there's a real truth out there. That we should be able to ascertain that there's a real truth. Something actually happened. Somebody did something somewhere to someone for some reason, and we should be able to figure what that is. We should be able to determine what it is. We should at least be able to get close to it. You will probably never be able to truly understand someone's motives, but I think we can get an idea of what actually happened. We know, for example, for example, we understand the president of the United States did have a phone call with Ukraine's president. He did ask Ukraine's president to look into a situation with crowd strike. Um, and he did ask Ukraine's president to look into a situation with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And he did profess that the prior prosecutor had been pushed out the door and was a good man. All of this is true and not denied by any party. The question is, why did the president do it? Did the president want to dig up dirt on Joe Biden? Or, I mean, he clearly did, but why? To go after him in 2020 or because he thinks that there was a prior scandal that was left ignored? We know he wanted uh, information on CrowdStrike, which we now know the president's own Homeland Security advisors advised the president uh, was not actually a real story. Now, most of my friends on the right get mad at me for saying that because most of my friends on the right are emotionally invested in the CrowdStrike story. I tend to trust the officials who have looked into it. And that becomes the other issue of, of who do you trust to figure out what is true? Who do you trust? A lot of people are trusting this guy, John Solomon from the Hill, who's on Hannity all the time because he's telling them what they want to hear. Yes, they believe there's a conspiracy. This guy says there's a conspiracy. He lays out the conspiracy. By God, there must be a conspiracy. Never mind that he's thoroughly repudiated by anyone else who's looked into this, but they may be progressive. How can we trust them? They might be lying. They probably are lying. They're in the mainstream media. This guy was in the mainstream media. So who do you trust? How do you find truth? I think we have an obligation to the truth. And I'm really disappointed in a lot of friends of mine who have bought into conspiracy theories or what they're doing is, is they're quibbling with key details. They're doing essentially uh, what, what the devil did to Jesus in the desert where he took lines of scripture and twisted them outside of the original context or uh, doing what Pontius Pilate did of, of what is truth or, or doing what skeptics of the Bible do where they say, well, it seems to suggest that John is saying the Passover meal happened on one day and everyone else is saying this, so how can they be true? 
I think there's a real truth out there and we have to figure out what it is and we may not always get it right, but I think we have an obligation to find it. I, I, and I don't think we can be dogmatic in say everyone else is saying this, but I truly believe this, therefore I'm right. At the same time, I think we need to understand that herds oftentimes get things wrong. People are stupid. People are sinners. Uh, we, we don't necessarily need to believe the herd. A case in point, and where I'm going with this, Adam Schiff said on television this. Uh, we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, we would like to, but I'm sure the whistleblower has concerns that he has not been advised, as the law requires, by the inspector general or the director of national intelligence just as to how he is to communicate with congress and so the risk with the whistleblower is retaliation uh, will the whistleblower be protected under the statute if the offices that are supposed to come to his assistance and provide the mechanism are unwilling to do so i have not spoken to the whistleblower but would like to do so and then there was this curious moment on 60 Minutes that drew the attention of Liz Cheney when Nancy Pelosi was interviewed uh, on 60 Minutes. Early last week, details of the president's phone call filtered out in the press. As some at the Capitol called for impeachment, Mr. Trump phoned Speaker Pelosi to reassure her about the call with Zelensky. He told you about the phone call. He told me it was perfect. There was nothing in the call. Uh, but I know what was in the call. I mean, we, it, it was in the public domain. But it wasn't. It was not in the public domain at the time the president called her. If you will recall, the transcript had not yet been released when Nancy Pelosi had a press conference and said the president had called her. The transcript was not there. The whistleblower complaint was not there. Where did she know it? Where did Adam Schiff know? Well, it turns out, if we're in search of the truth, I told you people it was coordinated. I told you it was coordinated, and I got beat up across the board by Democrats for telling you it was coordinated. I knew it was coordinated because I've been in politics long enough to know these things, to see the pattern of these things, to recognize that uh, this had to be coordinated. The Benghazi matter was coordinated between Republicans and whistleblowers. The Democrats are no less smart than the Republicans in Congress. They're all a bunch of stupid people, but they still have brains enough to be able to coordinate hitting the other side. The Democrats clearly had coordinated the issue of the whistleblower. They clearly had done so. There's no reason to lie about it. This is something the Democrats did. And they denied it, and they got mad at me for pointing it out. You had Cynthia Tucker, who's polluting the minds of students at the School of Journalism at UGA, the former left-wing columnist from the AJC, saying, I thought you were a respectable person. I can't believe you would peddle this conspiracy theory. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was true. The New York Times is admitting it. Adam Schiff got advanced knowledge, the same Adam Schiff who said this. Uh, we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, we would like to, but I'm sure the whistleblower has concerns that he has not been advised, as the law requires, by the inspector general or the director of national intelligence, just as to how he is to communicate with Congress. And, you know, Sam Stein from the Daily Beast went on MSNBC and tried to run interference for Adam Schiff on this. Sam, you spoke to Chairman Schiff last night. I want to read the quote again. That was September 17th. Sure. Quote, we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. How does he explain that when clearly at that point the whistleblower had come to Chairman right. Schiff's committee? 
So uh, we talked uh, for a couple minutes last night. He uh, expressed regret uh, for not having uh, been more clear in his wording. Um, what did he, he said, mean? He said at the time when he was saying that, uh, obviously we now know that, they, that the whistleblower had approached his staff, but uh, there wasn't 100% certainty that the whistleblower who had approached his staff was the same one who was behind the actual complaint. <laughs> There's a suspicion it was, uh, but there wasn't 100% certainty. We, we can cut. Listen to this. He, he's doing damage control for Adam Schiff. He's doing damage control for Adam Schiff there. What is truth? How can you believe these people? I mean, people on the right who have suspicion the media isn't telling us the truth. Look at that. I mean, they're attacking Mike Pompeo for not being clear about his role in the phone call. Pompeo told cameras he was not there and and now suddenly um he's all up they're all upset that he lied to a mike rogers former chairman of the intelligence committee the guy who was there before adam schiff now listen i i don't really believe that the secretary of state had a duty to disclose those calls are classified for a reason um and so i'm not sure he it was his responsibility to disclose it would have been in a broader sense if he was talking to the committee or other things it certainly would have been his duty to disclose uh Again, I, I don't like what they did politically, but this thing is such a mess, Chris. I, I, I can't tell you. I just talked with ambassadors and intelligence officials, both who are apoplectic about the way this, this thing is going. Yeah. He was talking to reporters. And, you know, that's true. Schiff was talking to reporters as well. But Schiff clearly lied about coordination. People like me getting blown up by the media for saying it was coordination, not getting attacked on TV for saying it was coordinated. Can't believe Erickson believed this conspiracy theory. Well, yeah, it wasn't a conspiracy theory after all. There are plenty of conspiracy theories out there. In fact, a lot of people are conjuring up conspiracy theories. But the issue here is truth. What is true? There are a lot of things we are told out there that aren't true. And frankly, a lot of those things come from the right these days. They're trying to muddy the water. And frankly, they're trying to make a process argument too. A buddy of mine who, by the way, is very sympathetic to the president, is a is a voter for the president, pointed this out, that making a process argument on this does not defeat whether or not they actually found something to get the president. Screaming about whether or not the whistleblower met with Schiff is like screaming at your wife for hiring the private detective who found out you were having an affair. Maybe there's a there there, maybe there's not. We don't know. But we should point out that the Democrats are not being honest and the media is not being honest on behalf of the Democrats. At the same time, there are people there on the left who themselves are not being honest and there are people on the right themselves who are not being honest. And we have an obligation to the truth. So I am a Christian. I am in seminary. And I think if if God is truth, real truth, we have an obligation to get to truth as best we can. And through sin and obfuscation and, and just the realities of this world, we may never truly get to the truth. But I think there is real truth out there because God exists. There is real truth. We're not in an age of moral relativism. We are a Pontius Pilate in scripture is such a direct contrast to Christ who is true the embodiment of truth and Pilate is like what is truth what's this truth everybody's got their own truth we live in the age of Pontius Pilate what is truth my truth your truth no there is an absolute truth and we may never get there but I think it's worth noting that the media right now 
is fully in the tank of the Democrats. For the media to have been so wrapped up on the president's Sharpie uh, drawing out the path of the hurricane, the media has taken a Sharpie. They've got a D next to their name, just like your typical politician on a ballot. And they've added an ME on one side and an IA on the other to claim to be media, but they're actually Democrats. And they're running interference for the Democrats. There are people on the president's team as well running interference for the president. And I support the president. I'm happy to support the president. Compared to what the Democrats would give us, I am happy to support the president. But I'm also not going to bend over backwards to lie on his behalf or to run interference for him because I think we have an obligation to the truth. If the president withheld money from Ukraine without a congressional authorization to do so, it's an impeachable offense. There's no evidence that he did that. If there's evidence that he did that, well, then I guess I'll be on the other side of a lot of my listeners who still won't want to support impeachment, and I'll have to because I think that the Constitution matters more than the president or or the Congress. I think the Constitution matters, and that would be the president taking the power of the purse for Article 2 of the Constitution, which he can't do. But we're not there. We're not anywhere near there. Where we are right now are the Democrats are trying to stack the deck and drip, drip, drip campaign to ruin the president, to weaken the president, to build a case for impeachment that they've been wanting to build since 2017. And I am under no obligation, nor are you, to humor them. I played that audio yesterday. I don't think we need to play it again today. But you got to remember that beginning at the beginning of February 2017, they were already talking about the tide turning, the tipping point, the breaking point, the bombshell, the, the, the new story, the, the end of the Trump administration, impeachment. They've been doing this for a while. There's no reason to, to play their game. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the people as well who say, hey, if this all went away, things would calm down. Part of me thinks that, too. But then I think, you know, that the media would probably find a way to go after Mike Pence. They would probably drum up fake attacks on Mike Pence. It's what the media does. You know, if if Mike Pence were president, I'm sure the media would find a fake attack on him as they found fake attacks on the president. Oh, wait, they're already doing that to Mike Pence. A disturbing story tonight involving a school outside Washington, D.C. Police in Northern Virginia are investigating after a 12-year-old African-American girl said three white classmates pinned her down and cut her dreadlocks. A black sixth grader says that she was pinned down by white classmates who mocked her and cut her hair. A 12-year-old Virginia girl says she is traumatized. She was pinned down by white classmates who cut her hair. Her white classmates pinned her down and cut her dreadlocks. Her classmates called her hair ugly and nappy as they pinned her down and cut several of her dreadlocks. Today, the girl and her family told us about what they're calling a racist attack. The girl says she's been bullied by the same boys before. It's very disturbing about these boys because it's heartbreaking and traumatizing for that little girl. The wife of the vice president, Mike Pence, she teaches there. Karen Pence teaches art part-time at Emanuel. Second Lady Karen Pence teaches art part-time there. Incidents like this, they're not isolated. They're happening way too often. Uh, And you know what's really sad is that she didn't tell her family for a couple of days. She didn't. She didn't. They just noticed that her hair was shorter and they asked her about it and she broke down. Because it was too upsetting. It was too upsetting. Yeah, I totally understand that. The school told CNN those involved in the incident will be out of school while 
Police continue their investigation. There you go. Yeah, story's been retracted now. They wanted to make it about Karen Pence because they wanted to get Mike Pence. They've been after him over her choice of teaching at a Christian school for a while. He's not even president, and they're coming after him. Imagine if he were. The media, the chaos, all of that, it's not going away. Hello there. So, controversy. I, you know, so I'm streaming on Facebook Live this morning, and I said I was going to get to this eventually. They didn't know when. I hadn't gotten there yet, and people are already arguing about it. The lines at Chick-fil-A. You people are as committed absolutely committed to the cult of Chick-fil-A as you are, Trump. <laughs> I loved, I literally had Chick-fil-A for lunch and supper yesterday. Uh, why? Because it is right outside. I live in a, a planned neighborhood. We swore we've never lived in the neighborhood we live in, and we wound up falling in love with the house we're in. Uh, and there's a Chick-fil-A right outside the neighborhood. And yesterday I was scrambling, so I'm trying to do the whole intermittent fasting crap to lose weight. And... So I, I, I got off the show at noon. I had to be at CrossFit at one. So I ran over, I grabbed uh, the grilled chicken sandwich and went to the gym. And then at dinner last night, went over and got the grilled chicken nuggets, which I like the grilled chicken nuggets, but they're kind of over seasoned. But in any event, the line at my Chick-fil-A is slower than molasses. I have literally sat in the line one night for eight minutes and did not move and people are outraged there's a study out that chick-fil-a has the slowest line in the fast food industry and oh that's not true how dare you say that about chicken you're interrupting this is just this is outrageous how dare you say that about chicken it's true at least at my chick-fil-a it's the slowest freaking drive-through line in america as far as i'm concerned i mean it's miserable I can get through the McDonald's and the Zaxby's combined in the time it takes me to get through Chick-fil-A. Unless it's in the middle of the day, if it's at lunchtime or dinner time and during the rush, it's so slow. And breakfast is the worst at this Chick-fil-A. Now, maybe it's such a, and you know, by the way, so I, my buddy Philip, who works for me, he actually started hitting on his now wife. He worked at Chick-fil-A and she would come through the drive-thru and he would hold up the line to hit on her. That's why that we used to, maybe that's happening now with, with the kids who work in there. I don't know, but my Lord, it's slow. Now I'm willing to concede that your personal Chick-fil-A may be really fast, but mine is really slow. Really? I, I don't, I don't know what it is. And you know, I feel sorry for the kids. You got a hundred degree heat out there in middle Georgia and they're standing out there with their iPads, taking the orders with their headsets on. So you're not having to go through the, the, the other line to try to speed the thing up and holy cow. And look, 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 I, I'm, I'm getting a text message from, from my buddy Brent, who's listening right now that I'm a liar. I don't care about your personal Chick-fil-A anecdote is not data. We have the data that the Chick-fil-A drive through sucks nationwide. On average, on average. Now, we've got a Chick-fil-A in Macon on Tom Hill Senior Boulevard. If you're if you're driving through Macon, it's the one you regularly see at Christmas lit up in lights. And it does probably have the fastest line in America. I mean, that line, there's never, they've got people, I mean, they've designed it. Basically, you got traffic wrapping around it twice and they zip people through there and it's fast. But the one across the street from me, I mean, it, it's like the, 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 what is the pokey little puppy? Running the joint. The thing is so slow. You got a bunch of turtles in there. I just, 
And people are offended. I mean, people, you should see now, the people online, as I'm talking about this, are livid that I'm insulting. I'm not insulting Chick-fil-A. I ate there twice yesterday. But can we acknowledge that anecdote is not data and the data suggests they need to speed things up? (laughs) Uh, You know, I didn't know that was the sound that was about to play, but I was going to talk about that, uh, texting recipe to 33777. Um, I did not send out the recipe yesterday. Uh, I'm sending, actually typing it up right now. Cause I had a change of heart on what I wanted to send out. Um, just, just a, a total, total segue. You, you know, y- y- people get tired of me talking about cooking. It's like the one thing people don't want me to talk about it. And by God, this is my show. It is the Eric Erickson show for a reason. And I'm going to talk about, I can talk about the Chick-fil-A drive through and I can talk about cooking for just a minute. Cause this one, this one's actually very personal to me. Uh, you know, I grew up in Dubai. Uh, I did not grow up in this country. We would come home during the summers. Uh, it was too hot in Dubai during the summers. Um, it was like making Georgia where I am now during the summers. Uh, <laughs> um, it's hotter over there. Um, but we would come home during the summer and my family is from a very rural part of Louisiana, the Felicianas. Uh, and on the, where the, the boot sticks out under Mississippi, it's, it's right under there. We're from a little town called Jackson. Uh, Jackson had 2,000 people, if you counted the middle patients at the state hospital. Yeah. Uh, it was like the Milledgeville of Louisiana, but smaller. Uh, and there was a little restaurant in Jackson, Louisiana called Bear Corners. Uh, Bear Corners was the original name of the town. Uh, the town name changed after Andrew Jackson came marching through for the Battle of New Orleans. They changed it to Jackson over time. Um, but is there's a little restaurant. During, they would serve nice meals at night, but during the daytime would serve barbecue beef po'boys, among other things. And they were, as a kid, they were my favorite thing to eat. I would come home in the summer and I would go get a barbecue beef po'boy. And there was a spicy heat to them. And uh, the restaurant closed over time and I always kicked myself for not getting that recipe. And when I was in high school, my brother-in-law was a recruiter for the Navy and would drive... Uh, through, through from Natchez, Mississippi, where he was, his recruiting office was down to see my sister at our house and Jackson would stop in Woodville, Mississippi. And there was a gas station. And in that gas station, they made the barbecue beef po'boys that bear quarter, the exact same taste. And I have been on a quest for probably 30 years to replicate those barbecue beef po'boys. And I have come close, and I actually, several years ago, stumbled on a cookbook of a man who drove through rural Louisiana on back highways, stopping in gas stations and others, to sample unique po'boys. And in rural Louisiana, near where I live, he sampled a a unique barbecue beef po'boy that he fell in love with, and I thought, by God, that's mine, and I made it, and it came close. And I have spent probably three years tweaking the flavor profile to get it as close as I could to the barbecue beef po' boy that I had as a kid and that I loved. I, and y'all, I love this sandwich. Uh, I'm not going to cry talking about it, but I, I swear to you, I have I spent my life inheritance on brisket uh, to try to recreate this barbecue beef po' boy. It is, it, I love it. I genuinely love this sandwich. It brings back all of the memories of childhood. Uh, and that is going to be my recipe today. If you would like to get the recipe, text recipe to 33777. I'll be sending it out around noon in the next commercial break. I got to finally get it loaded. Um, 
but I, I love this recipe. Now, that you, you're not tuning in here for recipes. You're tuning in here for the news of the day. But I'm, I'm going to throw in one more personal anecdote now. I'm going to hold you hostage to this. My son is 10. And he is playing soccer. He tried baseball. He likes baseball. But then he got into where the kids pitch and he, he gets hit with the ball and he doesn't like it. And, and he's he's not super aggressive for the infield. So they have him in the outfield and he gets bored. When he was real little, we would have him in baseball and he would be in the outfield. And, Ooh, butterflies and, and go away chasing the butterfly. And it, it just, it, it was not the nonstop momentum that soccer is. And I've never been a huge soccer fan. It's soccer. I grew up with it overseas. Uh, football. Uh, we, we had it overseas to some degree, cricket and camel racing and football were the, the big things when you grow up in the Middle East, but I was never really into it. And well, he's gotten into it. So I've tried to get into it and pay more attention, although I do like Braves games more. Uh, but Atlanta United games, I need to go to one. They're apparently awesome. In any event, this is only his second year. He, he's never had coaching. Uh, my wife and I are not soccer people, so it's not like we're taking going outside with him and doing this a lot. Uh, I guess we're gonna have to get him some coaching, but he wants to play goalie bad. And this past Saturday, he had a bad uh, time as goalie in the first half of the game. Uh, got three scores on him. Uh, in one of them, he hit it in the completely opposite direction of the ball, and it, they it, it wasn't good, and he was exhausted. And I felt bad for him, and my wife wanted to go out there and wring his neck because she didn't think he was pulling his teammates along the way he should. And then uh, he went to practice yesterday, and three of the kids on his team started bullying him on the field, uh, that he sucked and he was terrible and they didn't want him on their team. Uh, they wish he would quit. Um, and gosh, your heart breaks for your kid when that happens. And the, the coach and I talked about it because the coach really likes um, my, my son on his team because he's he's very enthusiastic about the game. He had a bad Saturday, uh, no question about that, but he wants to play every position. He wants to be goalie. He wants to be forward. He wants to be a defender. He wants to play every position. And so the coach obviously doesn't want to get him discouraged. We're, we've got him in a soccer camp coming up, but man, it sucks. Up here. Kids are so nasty to each other. Uh, they really can be nasty to each other. And yeah, to, to make a, a completely political segue in, into kids being nasty to each other, I'm finding more and more that in American tribalism, the people within the tribes can be really nasty to each other. It's one of the things I have, uh, I, I, I noticed and I thought Peter Jackson got right with Lord of the Rings. Have you ever watched Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings? Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien captured this very well in the book. And Jackson captures it too, uh, with the forces of Mordor in particular. Everybody kind of trash talks. I, I'm, I, I trash talk friends. I'm, I got a friend of mine who's, who's trash talking um, me right now over Chick-fil-A. Uh, but the, the, the forces of Mordor in... Lord of the Rings, if you ever notice them, even in the background shots in the movie, if you just watch the background shots, put it on mute. You don't even have to pay attention to what's going on. But when they show you Mordor and you're looking in the background uh, of the the orcs and the trolls and, and everything else, they're as nasty to each other as they are to the good guys. And they only stop going after each other when they're going after the good guys. You know, we're seeing this a real world play out right now. The left has decided Gandhi 
Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi is bad. Apparently they're going through his, his treatment of women when he was alive and they're going through his statements on race and, and black Africans when he was in South Africa. And he was a racist, misogynistic bigot. And Gandhi is bad. Gandhi is canceled in cancel culture. Now, you know he's not going to fight back because he's Gandhi. Well, I mean, beyond being dead, he, he wouldn't fight back. But still, Gandhi, they're canceling Gandhi. I mean, we, we see this on the left. Um, they, they, all of their heroes, they eventually turn on their heroes cancel culture they, they turn on each other and they're they're relentless and they're nasty to each other and, and you see that in in lord of the rings in the background the forces of mordor tearing each other apart when they're not tearing the good guys apart we see this in our own culture as well my goodness so i i said i said i would vote for the president in 2020 i didn't vote for the president in 2016 i had trump supporters show up at my house to threaten me and I didn't vote for the president in 2016. I thought character counted. I thought he and Hillary Clinton had appalling character. I, I wanted none of it. And so I voted third party. Well, you know, 100 million Americans disagreed with me. They said character really doesn't matter anymore. Uh, it's just about owning the other side. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit out 2020. And between the president and, and the left, I'm going with the president. Because while I have issues with him, you know, he's really not outside the mainstream of, of Republican presidential candidates. I mean, sure, personally he is, his behavior is, but his policies, I mean, a, a lot of his policies you would get from a Republican, even tariffs you'd get from Nixon, maybe they're not the best par comparison these days with, with the president, but still, I think tariffs are terrible, economically ruinous, and they're going to cost him re-election, not, not impeachment, but at the same time, his ju judicial picks, his tax policy, his regulatory policy, his foreign policy, his defense policy, his national security policy, his domestic policy, that's really not out of the line of Republicans. And yet you never know that by the outrage on the left as it, when they're not tearing each other up, that they come after him. But I'm noticing that on the left and the right these days, in, in the tribalist culture, they are deeply nasty to each other. Now, I, I'm, I kind of these days, I, I sit on the out, I, I'm the outsider, even among a lot of my friends, because a lot of my friends really don't like the president, even if they're conservatives, they, they just they don't like him. They don't care for him. They don't like his character. But then I got a lot of friends of mine who are diehard Trump supporters, diehard Trump supporters. I'm friends with a guy who has had a Trump 2020 sign in his yard for over a year. Yeah, it's one of those plastic bag ones that's over the giant staple frame and it's starting to fade. He's going to have to get another one by 2020, but he's had it there. He loves the guy, absolutely loves the president, was so mad at me for not supporting him in 2016, loves the guy. But he's more mad with people who he thinks are, are fully on the Trump train, so to speak, than he is with me. When they say anything that gets out of line, and people on the left are the same way these days, people are just nasty to each other inside political tribes. It, it's like people have to enforce some level of discipline within their tribes. Maybe if we valued everybody thinking for themselves these days, <clears throat> we'd be in a better position. But we're not there right now. We're, we're in, in peak tribalism. And it's tribalism on a host of things. You're not allowed to deviate from the intellectual leaders of your tribe these days, which is crazy. Because I know a lot of the supposed intellectual leaders on the left and the right, and they're all stupid people. I mean, there are some brilliant people out there. Don't get me wrong. There's some really brilliant people out there, but most of them aren't viewed as being in the tribe these days. But your, your average voice, I mean, for God's sakes, look at the Vox kids on the left. 
the supposedly intellectual leading site on the left that explains the news to you, and they're a bunch of idiots. I mean, they get everything wrong. Every single day they write something that is just flat out wrong. And people on the left regurgitate it as if it's, it's, as if it's legitimate. And on the right, you've got all these people who are embracing uh, John Solomon at the Hill who uh, comes up with these crazy conspiracy theories and these geriatric pundits on Fox who buy into the conspiracy theories. you got the president being led towards impeachment by Rudy Giuliani, a man getting a divorce because his wife hid the remote control from him. Maybe think for yourself, but also maybe show a little grace. You know, later in the show, I I don't want to do it right now. We don't have time. But there was that amazing video that came out of the guy on the stand in Texas yesterday. His brother is murdered by the police officer who came in, thought it was her apartment. I don't know. I'm not sure if she was drinking on drugs or what. I, I cannot remember. But she came into the apartment and she shot and killed the guy. He was a youth minister, I believe, who, who it was his apartment. It was his apartment. She walked in claiming it was her apartment. That was her defense, that she was confused and thought it was her apartment. And he was there and she shot and killed him. And the guy's brother on the stand just gives this amazing profession of, of Christian faith and grace. And we all need to be more like that. And nobody wants to be anymore. And, and in fact, I mean, we, we see this transcendent inside. You know, there have always been bullies and there have always been bad kids. And there have always been kids who, when, when you're on a sports team and, and you feel like your teammates letting you down, they're, they're just not nice. And I get that with my kid. Um, but seeing this, what's going on, and you know, last night I tried to tell my son, don't get discouraged. People are like that. And the secret to getting through life is to show more forgiveness than people ever show you. Never expect to be forgiven, but always forgive. Always show grace. We don't have a lot of grace in politics. We don't have a lot of grace in culture anymore. You know, I'm reminded, it's not just Jesus when he's crucified on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he didn't come with a lawyer with all sorts of provisos. Father, forgive them, but only if they apologize in the certain way that I approve before I breathe my last breath. Otherwise, don't forgive them because they truly didn't mean it. Or, Or Stephen, who the first martyr is being stoned to death and essentially says to forgive him, looks up, sees Jesus and says, forgive him, receive me and forgive him. He doesn't say, well, you can't forgive them yet because they haven't actually apologized or come to terms that they're doing something they shouldn't do. It just says, forgive them, forgive. We are not in a very forgiving culture these days and it affects our kids. It affects us. It affects our relationships with other people. It certainly affects our politics. But I'm stunned, particularly in politics, where within the tribes of politics, people are so unforgiving these days, except when it serves a purpose, except when it serves a purpose. Like, let's go back to the Sam Stein audio. Mike Pompeo told people that he did not was not on the call and they want to burn him to the ground. In fact, I want to spend a little time on this William Barr and Mike Pompeo stuff. The media wants to burn Mike Pompeo to the ground for lying, lies. He said he was on the call or wasn't on the call and he was. Liar. We can't trust anything he says. Meanwhile, Adam Schiff says he never talked to the whistleblower. Turns out he coordinated the whole thing. In fact, the, the, the New York Times leaves out a key detail that we should reflect on when we come back. But the media's like, oh, yeah, Adam Schiff, he, he had to do that. He had to do that. It's okay with him lying to us. 
when you extend grace only to the people who advantage you, it's not true grace. You're using each other. It's transactional. We're supposed to show grace, and we don't do. We don't show forgiveness as a society anymore. It's sad to see. It is. When we come back, though, let, let's focus in 638 words. 638 words. There was a very curious omission of three words that the New York Times should have added to their story about what Schiff knew or did not know. All right, let's get into these missing words from the New York Times story. They're they're very intriguing words missing. I did the word count on the story from the New York Times. The headline is Schiff got early account of accusations as whistleblowers' concerns grew. Here's the first paragraph. The Democratic head of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Adam B. Schiff of California, learned about the outlines of a CIA officer's concerns that President Trump had abused his power days before the officer filed a whistleblower complaint, according to a spokesman and current and former American officials. The early account by the future whistleblower shows how determined he was to make known his allegations that Mr. Trump asked Ukraine government, Ukraine's government, to interfere on his behalf in the 2020 election. It also explains how Mr. Schiff knew to press for the complaint when the Trump administration initially blocked lawmakers from seeing it. And on it goes, 600 38 words. There is a very curious omission in the story, a very curious omission in this story. Let me read you again the first paragraph, which is a 51-word sentence. The first paragraph is a single 51-word sentence. The Democratic head of the House Intelligence Community, Representative Adam B. Schiff of California, learned about the outlines of a CIA officer's concerns that President Trump had abused his power days before the officer filed a whistleblower complaint, according to a spokesman and current and former American officials. He learned about the complaint days before the officer filed a whistleblower complaint. Do you know what you, for context, for perspective, what's not in that 638-word write-up by the New York Times? When did the whistleblower file his complaint? He filed it on August 12th, 2019. He didn't file it right before we learned about it in public. And if you're not paying attention here, you, you may come to the conclusion that, oh, Schiff didn't have a lot of time to coordinate. No, he had almost two months to coordinate the rollout. Schiff learned days before. We don't know how many days before. The presidential phone call was July 26th or so. Adam Schiff probably learned the first week of August about it and then went to the lawyer and they, they prepared the whistleblower complaint. I mean, it's not like they filed the way I was a lawyer for God's sakes. I was a lawyer. If you're a lawyer out there, you know, you don't just write something and submit it. This thing clearly had details. They had the references to the law. They had the, the headings. They had the organizations. They had the flow. It was clearly rewritten multiple times. It's not like he just, it, like when I write my blog posts, I bang them out and hit posts. I never even proofread. I go back and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that error is in there because I'm a terrible proofreader. 
And this was this was well proofread. This was well organized. It took days to do it. And according to the Schiff people, he hadn't had a, met with a lawyer yet. So clearly it took some time. Clearly they took time to do it. So maybe a week to prepare the whistleblower complaint, which meant if Schiff had done, met it, maybe it was right after the phone call, the end of July. At the very least, August 1st, 2nd, 3rd, somewhere in there. We're on October 3rd now, almost two months, because this story all hit last week. So essentially, two months to get ready, two months to drip, 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 two months to coordinate the rollout, two months to put in, in order what should come out next, in which order should information come out. Took them that long to get prepared. And you know what the punchline is, is Adam Schiff had that hearing last week with the director of national intelligence. And it was a it was a botched hearing. It was all screwed up. The Democrats, I mean, it played badly for the Democrats. Even members of the media on MSNBC thought this was an embarrassment to the Democrats. So Adam Schiff had two months to get ready and still screwed up the hearing. Did his fake transcript at the beginning of the hearing, distracted everyone. He had two months to prepare and still screwed up. This bodes well for the president in an impeachment situation, does it not? When we come back, Georgia news, we got some Georgia news. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. If you want to be a part of the program, you too can call in at 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. We need to move into some of the Georgia news. Okay, first of all, I got to get to the story. I meant to get there yesterday. A four arrested in Georgia. For a robbery during a dating app meetup. Uh, this is from, where is this from? This is from the AJC. My goodness gracious, you got to be careful. Got to be careful with the dating apps. Four suspects, including a 16-year-old, were arrested after allegedly robbing a Tucker man at gunpoint during a dating app scheme. Nicholas Schaefer, 18, DeAndre Smith of 18 of Covington, and Nicholas Schaefer of Porterdale, Akira Washington, 23, of Covington, and the juvenile, because they're under 18, the AJC won't run their name, uh, were arrested after Covington police received an online tip. The four are accused of using the dating app. There's a dating app called Black. Uh, yeah, apparently so. BLK. To trick the victim into thinking he was meeting a woman for a date in Covington. Black is owned by the same parent company as Tinder and marketed toward young millennial African-Americans. Wait a second. I thought segregation was bad. And here we've got a, an app that is geared towards a uh, millennial African-American. So, so they can have a, a dating app just for young black people. What, what can you imagine the media reaction? If there were an app for just white people to date, I guess some people would say that is Tinder. I, I have no idea, but uh, this is news. I had no idea. I had no idea. In any event, when the man arrived at the meetup address, he was confronted by a woman and three gunmen. The four suspects got into the victim's car, rode together to a Wells Fargo branch off Georgia 142. One of the gunmen used the victim's debit card to withdraw an unknown amount of money. The victim attempted to wrestle the man's gun away, and a gunshot was fired. No one was struck. The suspects left in the victim's vehicle. Holy moly. On Tuesday, police released surveillance video of a suspect using the ATM. The four arrests were made Thursday. 
The 16-year-old will be charged as an adult with armed robbery, kidnapping, and aggravated assault. The moral of the story is stop using apps to go on a date. Go somewhere, meet someone in person. Good gracious, be careful out there, people. Goodness gracious. Holy moly. Happening now here in Georgia. Okay, the other Georgia news we really need to guess uh, talk about is is we have the first Democrat to come out for Johnny Isaacson's seat in the Senate. Has a familiar last name. That name would be Lieberman. You remember Lieberman? Lieberman was Al Gore's running mate in 2000. And John McCain wanted him as his running mate in 2008 till he was pressured to pick Sarah Palin. Joe Lieberman and, and John McCain were friends. Uh, Joe Lieberman, Democratic senator turned independent in Connecticut, uh, now retired. Uh, Matt Lieberman, his son, lives in Georgia. He's the first Democrat to enter the race against Johnny Isaacson. Well, not against Johnny Isaacson, against whoever the governor picks for Johnny Isaacson. We got news on that front, too. He says, I'm running as a fed-up citizen of Georgia and for the fed-up citizens of Georgia. I feel like, ah! You don't feel, you think. Stop feeling like stuff and think like stuff. I feel like I have to get off my butt and do something. I feel like this is a calling. The gap between what Georgians want and what Republicans reflect in Georgia is huge. Really? They just elected Brian Kemp. A political newcomer, Lieberman said he will advocate for what? For what? This sounds really like Georgia. Gun restrictions, impeachment of President Trump, abortion rights, and a public option for health care. What bubble does this guy live in? I, I'm, I'm assuming he lives, I bet he lives in DeKalb County. I bet he lives in DeKalb County. That would be my guess. He said he expects his father to factor into his campaign as an informal advisor. Whether you agreed with him or disagree with him, everyone respected his integrity. Now, he is the only Democrat running. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what he wants to do. Um, I'm trying to scan. No, he, oh, here we go. He's a, he's a Yaley. There you go. He's a Yaley. Went to Yale law school, founded a homelessness voucher program in New Haven, Connecticut. They moved to Atlanta in 2005. Oh, he did head a Jewish day school and then started a group benefits consulting firm and launched two tech startups. He wrote a novel in 2018 called Lucius focusing on race and friendship in the South. His campaign plans to emphasize his role as a single father of two daughters. They're featured prominently. Okay. Well, let's see. So he's got his video. Should we listen to his video? Yeah, let's listen to his video here. Let's listen to it. No, I don't want YouTube to track me while I'm listening to this video. Nothing. They can't come up with any way to do anything. Uh, how many different ways can these idiots in Washington? Are you serious? A million ways to do nothing. As a single dad, he's always been pretty relaxed and patient. But these days, he's really worked up over how screwed up everything is in Washington. The poor Disney has to hear it. I'm fed up. We're paying these people salaries, Disney. 
Disney's the golden retriever, you should know. In case, what's the occasion? I'm running for U.S. Senate. Ah. Dad might be a first-time candidate, but he's been helping people his whole life. He was a teacher. He started an innovative program to fight hunger and homelessness. He helped launch a local I Have a Dream program to provide college scholarships to kids who couldn't afford it. And he got a healthcare business up and running for families, small businesses, and union members. It's not that bad. It's really tasty. Did I mention I'm running for Senate? Oh. Oof. Tough crowd. Hey. We're voters. Let's see what you have to say. Yeah, why should we vote for you? Because I'm your dad. Last year here in Georgia, we were given hope for that hope to become change. We poster. need to be sure that every vote is counted. To me, it's personal. In 2000, I watched as the Supreme Court stole the election and changed the course of history. Stop! No! Lies! You're running it with a lie we know from the independent journalism review of the ballots that George Bush actually did win Florida. The Supreme Court stole nothing, liar. We need a Voting Rights Act for the 21st century. So what are you going to do about these laws that ban abortions before women even know they're pregnant? I'll protect... Lies! Roe v. Wade. Are you going to stand up to the NRA? I'll ban assault rifles and push for oh, wow. background checks on all gun purchases. How are you going to make Washington work for all of us here in Georgia? We need a constitutional amendment to end Citizens United. And I won't take a dime wow. from corporate PACs. You know Citizens United? Who, the people listening to this, do they even know what Citizens United is? I mean, my goodness. You got this, Dad. Go in. I'm in. Like most Georgians, I'm fed up. The good news is we don't have to accept it. I'm Matt Lieberman, and I'm running for U.S. Senate. I hope you'll join our campaign. Together, we can make this government work for us like it's supposed to. Okay. All right. Here's the deal. Uh, I don't know Matt Lieberman. I never met the guy in my life. Uh, he is apparently a very affable, very likable guy who means very well and deeply cares. We should not mock uh, his concern for his community. He has worked very hard in his community. Uh, he has worked on the homeless issue. He has worked on education issues, all these things. But he's hyper-progressive, and he's running. This is the thing that I'm noticing in Georgia. You know, the data actually doesn't bear it out, and Democrats are starting to realize this, and to some degree, Stacey Abrams is starting to realize it as well, that she ran as a hyper-progressive in uh, 2018, and she actually lost some people as a result. She couldn't mobilize the people she thought she could mobilize. To the extent she excited people, she excited people in the black community, and she excited people who hated Donald Trump. That'll still be an issue, the Donald Trump issue, but Matt Lieberman, a uh, white guy running, I, I don't know that he's actually going to be able to excite black voters. In fact, Democrats have a problem. They can't find a, a major black candidate to run in either of these races for the Senate, and that's going to hurt them. I don't know that having a, a white guy from probably DeKalb County would be my guess. That's where all the liberals live around here. Having a white guy from DeKalb County running on taking guns uh, and everything else, taking guns and, and abortion and uh, Citizens United. Who, who the heck talks about Citizens United anymore? And so we got a guy who's stuck in the past and, and still bitter over over uh, Gore v. Bush or Bush v. Gore or what have you and claiming the, the uh, Supreme Court stole the election, really? 
Can you imagine Al Gore as president on 9-11? My goodness gracious, nonetheless. Um, I mean, God bless him for throwing his hat in the ring. Nobody else is. There are a lot of people thinking about it. But this is this is just, this is the thing about the Georgia Democrats right now is so many Georgia Democrats have become Republican over the last number of years that the Georgia Democrats are more hyper-partisan and hyper-progressive um, than they've been in the past. And the other interesting thing here is is look at the bench we've got of, of the major Democrats in the last few years who have stepped forward with some clout. You've got a Lieberman, you've got a Carter, and you've got a Nunn. Do the Democrats not have a bench outside of former candidates' kids or, or former politicians' kids? That That's problematic as well. I... I... No... Um, no, let's see. Um, on policy stances, I'm strongly pro-choice. I'm strongly in favor of gun control, including a ban on assault rifles and universal background checks. I want to expand on the success of Obamacare and include a public option. We need to protect our environment, seize this last moment of opportunity to avoid irreversible damage. I'm in favor of policies that get us to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Someone needs to ask him about uh, nuclear power, I guess. I Y'all know... Um, the Democrats in Georgia, led by Ted Terry in the race against David Perdue, are going, I mean, fully on board this. Uh, we've got to be as far left as possible in Georgia. This is what voters in Georgia want. The problem here is that there are a bunch of DeKalb County Democrats surrounded by DeKalb County Democrats. And in DeKalb County, you can be a hippy-dippy leftist and nobody cares. You can go to Athens, Clark County and, and be a super leftist and, and nobody at UGA will care. They expect you to be, but the rest of Georgia doesn't like it. There's this growing perception fed by these people that there is Atlanta and there is Georgia, and people are very right on that. You know, Charles de Gaulle once famously said that there is Paris and there is France, and never the two shall meet. And that's kind of the way it is with Atlanta and Georgia right now. And you got a bunch of white Democrats from Atlanta who think that they represent all of Georgia when they don't. Brian Kemp won without Atlanta. Now, population growth in Atlanta, that's a problem for the Republicans because at some point they will need more people in Atlanta to vote for them. But that day has not yet arrived. And, and to run as a hyper-partisan progressive in Georgia on abortion and taking people's guns away and introducing a public option and killing people's private health care is the way to put the Democratic Party back. Maybe we should let them do this, shouldn't we? I mean, you're going to alienate Hispanic voters. You're going to alienate more uh, conservative African-American voters because, my goodness, the fact of the matter is that the urban white Democrats in Georgia are now running to the left of African-American Democrats in Georgia who are liberal, but they ain't that liberal. And you got these people coming out and, and taking these these hyper-partisan progressive stances. Uh, Ted Terry, Teresa Tomlinson, and, and now you've got this guy, Matt Lieberman, who, again, by all accounts, a very nice guy, single dad, raised his two daughters, uh, alone ran a Jewish school here in Atlanta, has worked on homeless issues, has gotten somehow into tech startups. Uh, his dad is Joe Lieberman, a highly respected, uh, slightly more moderate. It sounds like he's to the left of his dad on some of this stuff. But I don't think that plays well. And the fact that, you know, the Democrats can't seem to come up with people who aren't previously famous or tied to famous people. 
I don't think that helps them either in Georgia. The Democrats have a ways to go. If Stacey Abrams is going to step up and do it, they got a little ways to go. Welcome back. Um, it, just as a reminder, I, I did not send out the recipe yesterday. I'm going to send it out here in just a little while. In fact, I've got it up. I'm, I'm locking it in. If you weren't here in the first hour, I, I have a personal recipe. You know, I send out a recipe every week. I do it because I think in an age of hyper-partisanship, but also in an age of lost community, we are more and more inclined as a society to not break bread with other people, particularly with our physical next-door neighbor. Uh, oftentimes, we don't know them. And we see this in Georgia. It's one reason I, I don't want to disparage a guy like Matt uh, Lieberman, who actually has, uh, he's not from Georgia. He moved to Georgia and was here for a Jewish school. And whether I agree with him on politics or not, it is indisputable. He poured himself into the local community to help homeless people and others. And a, a lot of us don't do that anymore. We, we don't even want to have break bread with people. Our, our house is a wreck. Oh my gosh, we can't have anybody come over until we clean the house uh, top to bottom. We can't clean the house top to bottom, so we can't have people come over. Oh, there, there might be dog fur on the couch. Uh, let's never invite someone to our house. And I'm a really big believer in the idea that we should all be cooking more, not just for our families, not just because it's a healthier option, but because we need to have people over and we need to build community, particularly as conservatives. You know, it's very, very clear that we're living in a day and age where there is a vast isolation. And culture itself tries to make you feel alone. If you're a if you're a conservative, and you're a Christian, and you believe what the Bible says, marriage is between one man and one woman. Homosexuality is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Lying is a sin. If you believe you're supposed to raise your children to love God and, and that God is real and Jesus is real and all that, you, you live in a society that rejects all of that. Gertrude Himmelfarb says a society now exists to define deviancy down and what, what is normal is deviant and what is deviant is normal. And you live in a society that tells you so and tells your kids and they've given up on you, but they're coming for your kids. And they want your kids to know that, that you're all alone, you're isolated, you, you're, you're the one freak left who believes this crazy stuff. And so I think you've got an obligation to get your kid in, in a church community that shares your values and surround yourself with people and, and allows people to break bread together and come into your home. And even if they're, you know, their houses are messy too. They'll get over it. Bring people in, sit people around the table, share a warm meal together, show your kids there are other people in society who share your values. Because at some point, your kids are not going to listen to you. They're not. They're absolutely not going to listen to you. You are a crazy person who should not be listened to because they've seen you lose your mind trying to change a channel on a TV in the house. But they're going to listen to your friends because your friends are always cooler than you to the kids. The kids always want to be like, like mom's friend or dad's friend. So surround yourself with friends who share your values and your kids will realize, hey, it's not just my crazy mom and dad who think these things. We've got a lot of the other people who think these things as well. And the best way to do that is to bring these people into your home, to build community with them, to break bread with them. And that's one reason I send out this recipe every week. If, if you want the recipe, text recipe to 33777. Text recipe to 33777. 
this week, I, I'm, I, I mentioned this in the first hour. I'm, I'm sitting out. When I was a kid, there was a restaurant that served a barbecue beef po' boy in Louisiana. When I would come home from Dubai in the summer and live with my grandparents, I would walk. Literally, the restaurant was probably close to a mile, half a mile, a mile from my grandparents' house. And I would walk the distance just to get the sandwich. I'm not that old. I mean, my goodness, I'm not even 45. But yeah, I would walk. I was a kid. My grandmother was not going to drive me. She was a nurse. She would work. I would be at home by myself. And I would walk to get this sandwich. It was that good. And I am I have spent years trying to do And I haven't even gotten it quite right yet. But this is as close as I've gotten it. And it's good. It is good. And if you want it, I don't want to oversell it for you. But it's good. Uh, text the word recipe to 33777. Uh, and this afternoon you will get an email to you. What happens is you text recipe to three, three, seven, 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 and you get a, a message back and says, thanks. Now give me your email address. And you type in your email address, text it back, uh, reply back, and you're added to the recipe list and you get the recipe and you can, you know, if you text the word show to three, three, seven, 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 you get the podcast, you get the show notes and all of that. Um, now before we get out of here, this hour of radio is brought to us by First Liberty of Georgia, First Liberty Building and Loan. They are good people and good friends. I could not do the show without them. Uh, I do not thank them enough. Um, they're wonderful. I could not have gotten the show off the ground with them. Um, I am fronting the cost to get this program into distribution around the state. They helped me do that. If you are a small or medium-sized business and you need access to capital, go to firstlibertyga.com. Talk to my friends there. They are not a bank bureaucracy. They can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. Talk to the Frost family. Tell them I sent you. We will be back with the rest of these Senate characters running in Georgia. Yes, you can. If you want to call in and be a part of the program, you can do it by calling 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Let's run through some of the people who have applied for Johnny Isaacson's seat. Uh, Greg Bluestein of the AJC has been covering this. We got some unconventional candidates. You know, David Perdue has come out and said that uh, he wants a few things in his running mate that he says he implicitly trusts uh, Brian Kemp to get it right, that he and Brian Kemp have agreed they need someone uh, who supports the president. They need someone who supports the big issues, including immigration, and they need someone who can expand the box, uh, not just bring out the base. That seems to be an implicit rejection of Doug Collins. I'm not 100% sure. Um, we'll see now about 500 Georgians have submitted their resumes. I, I hear here. It's actually close now to about 550. They're slowly trotting them out. Um, some of them are just putting their names in to, to claim that it's, it's bizarre, uh, there's a university of former University of Georgia administrator who quit his job to embark on a quest for consensus. There's a criminal defense attorney with a history of Georgia politics, an OBGYN who preaches wellness and personal responsibility, and a hog killer who promises to pursue different kinds of pork in Washington. Most of them say they probably don't have a chance. A uh, small number. You have credible, well-known Republicans. You got Doug Collins. You got Jan Jones. You got Tom Price. I think you got Tom Graves in there as well, Congressman Tom Graves. They say they're as deserving as any other politico to earn a chance to woo the governor. So who do we have? The AJC's profile in some of them. Uh, there's Arthur Tripp Jr. 
He was a senior aide to UGA President Jerry Morehouse, had a hectic life in Atlanta, wife, a newborn baby. He left to run an independent bid for Gwinnett County State Senate seat. Uh, it sounds crazy, uh, but it got to the point where I couldn't feel comfortable coming home to our 18-month-old doing without doing something. I cannot stand us being turned against each other. He was on the campaign trail for a few months when news of Isaacson's retirement hit, and he decided he would apply for the Senate seat. Um, he is uh, still focused on succeeding Renee Unterman in the Gold Dome as an independent, but he's putting this in as well. There's Robert Patillo. He's a criminal defense attorney who organized for John Edwards in the DNC. He worked as a researcher for Jesse Jackson. He ran as a state house uh, state house seat in 2012 as a Democrat, uh, and he's put his name into the ring. He hosts a radio show on WAOK and dabbles in cable news punditry and decided to do it by tossing his name in the ring. There's Melody McLeod. She's a professional. She's a doctor. Uh, she is a uh, OBGYN affiliated with Emory. She was the first black woman to establish an OBGYN practice in DeKalb County. She's a lecturer uh, focused on health and sex. Uh, she identifies neither as a Republican or Democrat, but says she is conservative-minded. She preaches personal responsibility, uh, talks about crime in the black community, and a return to family structure. And then there's the hog killer, Hal Shush, I guess his name is, or Shouse House with an S on the front, Hal Shouse, knows a thing or two about it. He's a Navy veteran. He went from running strip clubs and an escort service in Arizona to building a hog business. This, this, this guy, he went from running strip clubs and an escort service in Arizona to building a thriving hog killing business. In southwest Georgia, who better to fit in in Washington than this guy? Many nights, he can be found armed with high-powered assault rifles in search of feral hogs menacing farms. By day, he's a political junkie. I can't yell at my TV anymore. I have no other choice. The 49-year-old considers himself a conservative Democrat. Well, there you go. He's out. Wants to preserve gun rights, provide more support for law enforcement. He says his bluntness will impress Kemp. He's prepared to run for the seat regardless of whether he's Kemp's pick. I'm telling you right now, they're not going to be able to answer the questions the way I can. It's going to be a grind. I've got to visit 159 counties, and I'm going to try not to cuss. I'm a sailor, but I'm going to have to slow my roll, he says. The 49-year-old, my goodness gracious. Yes! Yes, I thank you to the AJC for spending some time uh, with some of the more unique candidates out there who probably aren't going to have a shot at doing it. By the way, there is some polling out in Georgia that suggests Joe Biden is still doing well here in Georgia, but Elizabeth Warren is growing on him in part because of the metro area. That's right. Elizabeth Warren is eking up on Joe Biden everywhere. Uh, in fact, that reminds me, what is the real clear politics? Because I think Elizabeth Warren is set to... Oh, no, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming close, coming close. Uh, Joe Biden is now at 26.2% in the real clear politics average. And Elizabeth Warren, 
uh, is at uh, 22%, uh, no, 24%. Joe Biden, 26 Elizabeth Warren, 24%. Biden has never fallen behind in the real clear politics polling. And here's the thing. So here, here's the order right now. Biden, 26, Warren, 24, Sanders, 16, Buttigieg at 5.5, Harris at 4.6. Poor old Beto. Beto is at 2.2%. But hey, he's doing better than than Amy Klobuchar, a U.S. senator who's at 1%. Marion Williamson has gone down to 0.7%. That's sad. That's sad. Cory Booker's at 1.7%. Julian Castro at 1.5%. Tulsi Gabbard at 1%. Gabbard has made the next debate, by the way, against, um, what's her name, Kamala Harris. Gabbard's going to be back in there, and she and, and Kamala Harris do not like each other. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren is kind of out taking some digs at Kamala Harris. Now, very subtly, Kamala Harris, you know, she's like the, the person who tries so hard to be teacher's pet and, and by tattletaling on everyone. Uh, she sent a, a letter to Jack Dorsey at Twitter. Teacher, teacher, Donald Trump, he's saying not nice things on Twitter. We, we, we need to do something. She wants him banned from Twitter. This is a woman who wants to protect the First Amendment, wanting to shut down Donald Trump on Twitter. Here's Elizabeth Warren. Warren on, on all this and more. Uh, Senator Warren, Senator Warren, a uh, really easy one. Uh, should Donald Trump be banned from Twitter? No. All right. Senator, Senator Warren, can you explain to us how you would implement the buyback that you have supported? So uh, uh, I support what works uh, and that we can get done as quickly as possible. So think about what happened with machine guns. We decided that uh, we didn't want machine guns on our streets. We didn't want our children killed by machine guns. And so what do we do as a country? Well, we put a serious tax on machine guns. We insisted that they be registered. There were severe penalties for failing to do that. And we offered to let people turn them in. Wow. So we're going to go all the way back to the days of the machine gun for arguments. But does she think Trump should be banned from Twitter? No. Kamala Harris seems to think Trump should be banned from Twitter. It's going to be interesting. But here in Georgia, Joe Biden, he's still in the lead here in Georgia, according to some polling I've seen. Elizabeth Warren, though, uh, eking up on him as well. Interestingly enough, so Joe Biden is still extremely popular uh, with black voters across the board. In, in South Carolina, there's some polling out that, that Joe Biden has right now a firewall in South Carolina because of black voters. That's not going anywhere. The same holds true in Georgia. Black voters overwhelmingly support Joe Biden, particularly black female voters, and they don't really like Elizabeth Warren. They also don't like Bernie Sanders, and, and Sanders is declining. As Warren goes up, Sanders is declining. You know, uh, prayers for Senator uh, Sanders. He has had a heart attack, uh, has had to have um, a stint put in. He's taking time off on the campaign trail to recover. His campaign is largely playing it down, but those familiar with his campaign say, yeah, it, it was a heart attack. He was having chest pains, went to the hospital. They found blockages. Uh, they had to they had to do a heart cath, had to put a stint in, uh, two stints in, and he's recovering. Um and I think that shows his age. It is really is amazing that even Warren, Biden, and Sanders are all older than Donald Trump. They're all older than Trump, which is cray-cray. Um, it, we, we got a bunch of baby boomers out there running for president, and they're all geriatric. Uh, whatever happened to the fresh faces? It's kind of funny, too, that young voters still love them some Bernie Sanders. I mean, the, the, the prevailing theory in the media is that young voters, they want someone who's young that they can connect to. And I don't think that's true at all. 
you know, there's actually this this behind the scenes stuff of in radio we're dealing with millennials because you know in radio you have this demo. It's like 25 to 54. And so the baby boomers have now all of them, as of last year, they've all fallen out of the demo. Now, never mind that it's it's the 40, 50, and 60-year-olds who have the money to buy the stuff you advertise on radio. Uh, advertisers are very interested in the in the 20 to 40-year-olds, to and they're interested in the 20 to 40-year-olds because they really do believe without any evidence, and there actually isn't evidence out there. There's no data to support this. But they really do believe that if they can get a 20-year-old buying their products now when they're 60, they'll still be buying their products. So they're trying to build loyalty. None of the marketing data out there shows this, but it's it's between the Nielsen ratings and everything else, it's all focused on this idea that you can get a young person to start buying something and they will carry it through their life buying that product, and it's not true. It is flat out not true, but that's the way marketing works, and that's how ad dollars are going. So nobody cares about the the um, baby boomers anymore. Nobody cares. If you're 55 and older in radio, they don't care about you anymore. If you ever wanted to understand some of the advertisements you hear on TV and, and see on TV and hear on radio, that's why. Uh, the demo is is the 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 millennials uh, to the end of the Gen X. Um, that's that's what they care about. Baby boomers, nope, nobody cares about them anymore. And the problem is that, it, it, particularly in talk radio, people are trying to figure out what do you do with millennials. And there's this idea that you need, like the, the morning zoo programming you hear on FM that they grew up with in high school listening to, driving themselves to school. You had the, the morning shock jocks cry, going as close to the line as they possibly can and saying stuff uh, with about five or 600 voices on the, on the radio show. And, and we got to do that. And I, I think part of the problem you have with millennials, particularly um, these days, is there isn't a lot of good data on what they actually want. But there's a lot of psychographic data out there that shows millennials don't actually know what they want. And I don't mean that disparagingly. Uh, this is kind of the Apple strategy. Uh, Steve Jobs was very famous for saying that millennials don't actually, not millennials, that, that people don't actually know what they want. You have to give them something and convince them that's what they want. But what people do want when pushed is they want what their parents had, but better. They want what their parents had, but better. So when in media these days, and this is across the board, not just radio and TV, people are scrambling to figure out what millennials want. But, you know, as a millennial grows and a millennial gets into the workforce they want to be what their parents were, but better because their parents were adult. And at some point there's something for a while, we're seeing that millennials longer and longer want to stay kids. But as they get into their thirties now, you know, they're not going out as much. They're not drinking with their friends. They're staying home. They're cooking meals. They're adulting, adulting, adulting has become a verb. And the model for how they adult is learned from their parents and their parents, friends. And so they go in search of news. And we're actually seeing this rise in public radio listenership, not because their parents who were conservatives listened to public radio, but because what they're getting on, for example, regular talk radio is what the, they th- people think they need, the, the morning zoo kind of stuff that they listen to as, as high schoolers when they were driving themselves to school with their friends and were trying to be cool and listen to the guy telling the dirty joke on the radio, cro- not crossing the line to get in trouble with the FCC. 
Uh, and but now they're shifting and they want news. And well, they're not getting news from that, so they got to go to NPR. Um, you got to give them what they actually need and want, not what they think they want, because they think they don't want to grow up. They think they want Peter Pan still, and in reality, they're reaching an age in their 30s where they want to grow up. And we're seeing that with millennials translated into the data with Bernie Sanders. The younger end of millennials, they like Bernie Sanders because he's the old guy trying to connect to the young people with some level of hippie radicalism. But as the millennials are older, the older end of millennials actually are rejecting Bernie Sanders because they recognize it's impractical. To the extent they're going somewhere, they're going to Elizabeth Warren if they still like those that progressivism, or they're going to Joe Biden on the, on the left because they want someone who can beat Donald Trump and they want the steady hand. At some point, you know, as an adult, you do want the steady hand because you have your retirement, you have your paycheck, you got your 401k, and you need the steady hand. And the conservative millennials, interestingly enough, don't want Donald Trump. They're, that is the most interesting bit of data out there. Anecdotally, your millennial friend may like Donald Trump. They're in the college Republicans and they like the president. But young millennial conservatives don't like Donald Trump. For the exact same reason that as they as they start to age, they move out of this this morning zoo content on TV and radio and actually want real news. It's the same reason, because they look to their parents to define what adulthood is, and they look at their parents who have embraced Donald Trump and they say, "Well, what the heck has happened to you people? This isn't the, va- the he doesn't reflect the values that I have. He doesn't reflect me. He doesn't reflect the way you raised me. This isn't the guy that as a kid you said I should look up to, so I can't go with him. I want someone else. And if you pay actually pay attention to the political trend lines, you can kind of see where the marketing stuff is headed too. It's a very interesting, and I don't mean that disparagingly, by the way. I don't mean that I don't mean to be controversial. This is actually in the data. It is actually in the data that young millennial evangelicals, in fact, are leaving churches that have become political because their parents told them that you go to church for the gospel, not for politics. And when their church gets too political, they move. And that also impacts a lot of the data about evangelicals leaving young evangelicals leaving churches. They're not actually leaving churches and becoming atheists. They're leaving churches and going to more traditional churches. You know, all the big churches out there with the big bands and, and the, the words on the screen and all that, they're actually in trouble. It's young millennials who are a, starting to age are going to find traditional churches, which, you know, if, if you were a marketer in TV and radio, you should probably pay attention to that stuff. That as evangelicals start to realize, or evangel, as millennials start to realize I'm an adult and I got to get out of Peter Pan. They're looking to what was familiar to them as a child back when they were connecting with their parents and learning from their parents. And it's it's marketing these days could learn a lot from so much of marketing is built on mythology. And in campaigns as well, so much is built on on mythology. You can actually look at the data, though, and see where it's it's trending. And it's very interesting. Millennials get a very bad rap. I'm one of the people who, who makes cracks about millennials. But what we're actually seeing is when they get into the workforce and they start trying to connect as an adult to life, they look to what their parents were doing when they when the millennial themselves were kids. It's very interesting how this is working. In other words, we should be having an explosion of Paul Harvey here soon. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, So I talked about uh, Matt Lieberman. uh, Some news from Washington, D.C. now from uh, Josh Krashauer at National Journal. He kind of writes there uh, against the grain column. He's the politics editor. He's very, very good. 
uh, at kind of pointing out BS and people's theories and politics. <laughs> there are some livid, livid Democrats behind the scenes about Matt Lieberman. Genuinely angry Democrats. In fact, uh, Politico is reporting uh, right now with Joe Lieberman's son running, garnering headlines that this is going to cause a crowded field of Democrats. So uh, this goes to Josh Krauschauer's point as well. The Democrats behind the scenes have been working very hard to limit the number of people who would run for for um, Johnny Isaacson's seat. The reason that they want to do that is because this is going to be a jungle primary. The Democrats need to keep the field very small to keep the Republican, whoever uh, Brian Kemp picks, they need to keep that person under 50% to get into a runoff where they can have a fight. But Matt Lieberman was not the guy. Matt Lieberman is not the guy that anyone wanted. He is not the guy that uh, anyone really expected to get in. He apparently some people tried to dissuade him from doing this because they were afraid if he got in using his dad's name to get some credibility with the national press, you were going to have a free for all. And so instead of having two or three Democratic candidates, you would have seven or eight Democratic candidates in a jungle primary all competing with each other. They are worried that his entry is going to flood the zone with candidates. They're probably right. They're probably right. They're going to flood the zone with candidates. And in flooding the zone with candidates, you're going to have one Republican. You're not going to have a bunch of Republicans. You see, here's the thing. Um, the Republicans are going to work overtime to pair the list of candidates. And you're going to have David Perdue and Brian Kemp and Chris Carr and Jeff Duncan and Brad Rathensberger and um, um, the Gary Black and all the, the statewide folks, they're going to rally around this guy. You're going to have all the congressmen rally around whoever Kemp picks. You're going to have all of these people rally around Kemp's pick. And any other Republican is going to be shunned and going to be pushed aside and going to be ignored. And the party is going to come in and pour money in to help that person. Well, the Democrats can't do that. The Democrats can't pour money in to help a particular person, can they? Because you're going to have a dozen candidates. Who are they going to pick? What, whoever the Democrats pick. See, it's going to be a national story if a bunch of Republicans jump in to challenge Kemp's pick. It'll be a national story, but the Republican Party will come in and they will choose Kemp's candidate. The Democrats, though... The storyline for them, if they were to do the same, is, oh, National Democrats trying to come in and pick Washington's candidate. Washington's trying to pick the candidate. They're not letting Georgia voters do it, and that's going to be a problem for the Democrats. That's a narrative they don't want. Now, when we come back, the president kind of melted down yesterday. It was kind of funny. We should cover it. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, around the world on the internet right now on Facebook Live. You can be a part of the program if you like, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website. My friends, the Frost family, good Christian family, great conservatives, um, great at business, and they want to help you if you you have a small or medium-sized business and you want to become a large business, you need to check out FirstLibertyGA.com. They are not a bank. They do not have a bank bureaucracy. Uh, these people are great. I am telling you, 
Uh, if you're a small or medium-sized business and you need access to capital, go to FirstLibertyGA.com. Tell them I sent you. Frankly, it helps this show as well, uh, and it helps you. Uh, so go to FirstLibertyGA.com uh, if you want to grow your business. Okay, we have to get back into national politics uh, the, through the divergent politics in Georgia. But, man, I, so I got a note uh, from a reporter who is listening to the program uh, in Athens uh, over there doing something at UGA, listening on WGAU over there, and is <laughs> getting bombarded with angry Democrats over Matt Lieberman. Uh, says that uh, the Democrats are spitting mad, in his words, hang on, uh, Democrats spitting mad, sending lots of nasty emails pointing out that a Carter couldn't win, a Nunn couldn't win, a Lieberman's not going to win in Georgia either. Also, that he's making the same mistake Ted Terry is making by going too far to the left too quickly. There you have it. Uh, they, they ain't happy. Before I get to the president, though, I'm going to play you a very long piece of audio. Uh, Brant Jean. This is the the situ- This is the story out of um, out of Texas, where the guy was killed by the off-duty police officer. The off-duty police officer was a white lady. the The man was a black youth minister for a church. And she walked in and she thought it was her place. And in thinking it was her place, well, she she wound up killing the guy. And she begged and pleaded for a lot of mercy. And she still went on trial. She could not use being a police officer to protect herself. It wasn't going to happen. And a lot of people turned this into a police abuse case. Uh, If you listen to a lot of the commentary out there, this was an abusive white police officer killing a black man. Uh, The people who watched the trial, you read the trial's transcripts, you found a couple of things. She didn't know that it was a black man. Uh, The apartment was dark. She thought it was her apartment. She was confused. It was not her apartment. It was his apartment. And And she killed him. Well... There are a lot of people today very upset with the man's brother. The man's brother took the um, took the stand yesterday. They're having the sentencing. And he and his brother, his dead brother, strong Christians. And he exemplified Christian grace. And today, the man who lost his brother... And the black judge who presided over the case are being attacked by white progressives. They actually are being attacked by white progressives and, and some, some black civil rights activists as well. I want to play you the audio of what this man said. In the first hour this morning, I mentioned how we have lost grace in our politics. We've lost grace within the political tribes of the day. We've lost the ability to show forgiveness. We've lost the ability to agree to disagree. It's all yelling all the time. Social media brings out the worst in people. And I want to play you this and think about the society we live in. 
Think about this man. His brother has been murdered by this woman. And listen to what he says. I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. That was the judge telling him, yes, he could give the defendant a hug. She gets 10 years in jail for killing that guy's brother. He just wants her to give her life to Christ. That's what his brother would want. That's what he wants. He does not want her to go to jail. She will go to jail. She'll go to prison as a police officer in prison uh, for 10 years. Maybe she'll get out early. Maybe not. What a difficult thing to do. What a difficult thing to do. And yet he did it. Would you, would you have the strength to do that? Would you have the, if you loved your sibling? Now, I know there are people who, who madly despise their brother or their sister. But you love your brother or your sister. You love your parent. You love your child. Someone murders them. Would you have the strength to do what that guy did? To say, I love you. I want to hug you. I don't want you to go to prison. I want you to accept Jesus. Now, the judge afterwards also hugged the defendant. The the judge and, and this this man, they're, they're both black. The, the defendant is white, white lady, police officer who killed the guy. 
the judge did something that has progressives outraised particularly white progressives. By the way, this guy, this guy is being accused by some progressives of having internalized white supremacist culture. That's right, white supremacist culture that the only reason this guy could do what he did is because he had internalized white supremacist culture. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. They're attacking this guy. They haven't lived in his shoes. They don't know what it's like. They, they have no understanding of his religious convictions. And they say he's internalized white supremacy culture. Jamel Hill, the, the obnoxious woman who was fired from ESPN for trying to politicize sports, uh, she went off on the judge. How dare the judge behave this way? The judge when the trial was over, hugged the defendant and handed her a Bible and said all it took was the planting of a mustard seed of faith, quoting from Jesus, and wanted encouraged the woman to read the Bible. And the judge is being attacked for doing that. Separation of church and state, you know. Uh, these people, they haven't paid attention to the trial. They're, they're, they're attacking the judge and they're attacking the guy's brother for showing grace. Uh, they are showing no grace in their actions. They're, 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 they're unable to relate. And, you know, I, I do hope that you will think about that yourselves in this, that we have a bunch of people who are fundamentally unable to relate to this situation to this man who lost his brother, to this judge who wants to help this woman to turn the corner, and it's just nastiness. It's contempt for these people who did something nice. They're attacking someone for doing something kind. What would you do if you were in that case? What would you do if it was your relative who was murdered, would you respond as well? Here, here's Jamel Hill. She tweeted this. How Botham Jean's brother chooses to grieve is his business. He's entitled to that. Notice what she's saying, how he chooses to grieve. He's not choosing to grieve per se. He's choosing to forgive. And she can't recognize that. This woman who was fired from ESPN for politicizing everything. Then she says, the judge choosing to hug this woman is unacceptable. Keep in mind, this convicted murderer is the same one who laughed about Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and killing people on sight. I don't actually know what her accusations are. But this is crazy. The judge actually told the woman, Amber Geiger, you haven't done so much that you can't be forgiven. You did something bad in one moment in time. What you do now matters. To have this woman from the Atlantic who politicized so much that they had to get her off ESPN to attack the judge for saying that is ridiculous. 
um, to, to being passive aggressive against the against the brother for choosing to grieve in this way. She can't say anything about him. He's choosing to grieve in this way, but she's going to go after the judge. She, you know, she'd like by her phrase to go after the brother. He, he's not grieving. He's forgiving. What is this woman to Jamel Hill or any of these other people? She doesn't know him. She has. She doesn't know him at all. And they're exemplifying a love that Jamel Hill clearly doesn't have and doesn't understand. And and not alone to, to see a bunch of white progressives out there saying that he's internalized white supremacy by showing forgiveness. This is the, this is our culture today. This is our culture. And we should all be kind of horrified that people out there believe these sorts of things. We should be in prayer for these people. I mean, we should. We should we should be praying for these people. But we should, in our political discourse, think about this guy who's saying he forgives her, embodying Christian forgiveness. I mentioned this the first hour. You know, we 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 live in we live in this day now in culture where when we when we decide we're gonna forgive someone, we see this in social media a lot. Social media obviously is not indicative of culture as a whole, but it is reflective of something we see in culture. I'm going to forgive you, but you must apologize the way I want you to apologize. And if you do not apologize with the exact words I want you to apologize with and do the thing I want you to do, I am not going to forgive you. I hear all the time that uh, when I tell people we, we, we shouldn't hold something against someone from 10 years. Well, they never apologize. They never actually apologize for that thing they did a decade ago. They must be canceled. Canceled. For God's sakes, people, they want to cancel Gandhi. They actually, Mahatma Gandhi, cancel culture has come for Gandhi because he apparently wrote things they consider misogynist and had racist views. They're canceling Gandhi now. These people, again, it goes back to Lord of the Rings. You see where, where the, the, the orcs and trolls and, and monsters from Mordor were as nasty to each other as they were to everyone else. They only stopped killing each other when they could point to something good and say, let's go get that thing. And the moment they wiped out the good, they would go back to killing each other. That's what we see in culture today. It's something that J.R.R. Tolkien got right. It is disgusting. It is gross. And we should reflect, be more like this guy who is more like Christ than we should be like cancel culture, which shows no grace and has no mercy for anyone. So shall we get back to politics? Uh, The president's press conference. Oh, my goodness. Uh, The the president, let's just say yesterday, he's he doesn't do well under pressure. I don't think Uh, the president well went off on Adam Schiff. And this was, by the way, before I I think this was before. The president found out that Schiff had... No, 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 it was after, it was after. Uh, Listen to the president. This is a hoax. This is the greatest hoax. This is just a continuation of what's been playing out, John, for the last... uh, Since my election, I would say, if you want, and probably we'll find out soon, but probably even before my election. Uh, This is a, a fraudulent crime on the American people, but we'll work together with Shifty Shift and uh, Pelosi and all of them. And we'll see what happens because uh, we did absolutely. I had a great call with the president of Ukraine. It was 100 percent. You have the transcript. And then uh, Schiff went up and he got as the chairman of the committee, got up and uh, related a call that didn't take place. He made up the language. Hard to believe. Nobody's ever seen this. I think he had some kind of a mental breakdown. But he went up to the microphone and he read a statement from the president of the United States as if I were on the call. Because what happened is when he looked at the 
sheet, which was an exact transcript of my call, done by very talented people that do this, exact, word for word. He said, wow, he didn't do anything wrong. So he made it up. He went up to a microphone, and in front of the American people, and in Congress, he went out and he, he gave a whole presentation of words that the President of the United States never said. It has to be a criminal act. It has to be. And he should resign. He should resign, the president says. Well, yes. And there's a little more. Uh, well, it sounds like it might be a good question. Let me see if I like the question. Go ahead. There, maybe for By the way, first time wait, wait, in three wait, wait, wait. years. I, I, I love the president. I, I want to decide if I like your question or not first. I have a good question, and I love it. There is a report that came out just before you and President Ninishta walked out here that the whistleblower met with a staff member of Adam Schiff prior oh, I to love that question. being filed. It shows that Schiff is a fraud. And I, I love that question. Thank you, John. So can I finish asking? Yes, there's nothing to finish. Uh, so, <laughs> so the whistleblower, according to this report, met with a member of, of uh, Adam Schiff's staff. You got it right there. You know it. I hate to say it's the New York Times. I can't believe they wrote it. Your, your response to the Maybe fact Maybe they're getting that, better. Your response to the fact that that happened and that Schiff may have learned some of what the whistleblower knew prior to the complaint. Well, I think it's a scandal that he knew before. I go a step further. I think he probably helped write it. Okay? That's what the word is. And I think it's, uh, I give a lot of respect for the New York Times for putting it out. Just happened as I'm walking up here, they handed it to me. And I said to Mike, I said, whoa, that's something. That's big stuff. That's a big story. He knew long before, and he helped write it too. It's a scam. It's a scam. Just to finish on this, I appreciate it. I love that second question, by the way. Should have asked it first. But, but let, let me just tell you, the whole thing is a scam. The Mueller deal was a scam. The Russian collusion was a scam. You can ask Putin. Nobody's been rougher on Russia than Donald Trump, okay? Now, with that being said, it would be great to get along with Russia. And we will get along with Russia because it's smart. But nobody's been tougher on Russia than Donald Trump. All righty, then, according to the president. Also happening now uh, at the White House, this. What, what exactly did you hope Zelensky would do about the Biden after your phone call? Exactly. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. It's a very simple answer. Uh, they should investigate the Bidens because how does a company that's newly formed and all these companies, if you look at, and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. So I would say that President Zelensky, if it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation. Now, of course, the, the Democrats are out there saying, see, see, he's trying to stir China up to go after the Bidens as well. Eh. Uh, this is Trump being Trump, folks. Just Trump being Trump. Gun control and Joe Biden when we come back. I kid you not, I've already gotten the New York Times uh, push alert that the, the president on camera urged China to investigate Joe Biden. Y'all, I, I got to admit I'm grading on a curb, but this is Trump being Trump. Um, this is, this is Donald Trump being Donald Trump. If, uh, president Trump, uh, were putting uh, U.S. power behind his accusations, then I'd be concerned, but it's, this is Donald Trump being Donald Trump. 
Uh, and, you know, for a media that has turned a blind, that turned a blind eye for years to all the stuff Barack Obama did. Hello, the IRS was targeting Tea Party groups after the president started bashing them. He didn't have to tell the IRS to specifically do it. They were dogmatic enough to know uh, that this would benefit President Obama. And, and the media turned out there was no scandal during the Obama administration. It, it's hard to take this stuff seriously. It's also hard to take seriously the Democrats on their gun stuff. I mean, my goodness, they're getting nuts on this stuff. Joe Biden is now out with gun control demands. Meantime, in meantime, go out and eliminate the ability to purchase and or make any more of these assault weapons, period. Now, there's a third thing we do. Under the Firearms Act of 1934, there's a situation where when they outlawed machine guns, they said, okay, you can continue to have the machine gun if you own it, but guess what? You got to let us know you have one. You got to let us know you have one. National Firearms Act. You got it. I want that for all assault weapons. I want that for magazines because that, what happens is if we know you have one, the likelihood of that ever being used in a commission of a crime after a voluntary buyback is highly unlikely, highly unlikely. Uh, yeah, so he, he basically wants a national registry for everything so the government can eventually confiscate our guns. Cory Booker as well is out now. I mean, Booker is a non-starter, but he's in the Senate, so we should pay attention to him. Mandatory buyback, voluntary buyback. This is another thing that to me is just, again, abs absurd. Let's start with what we're talking about here. Which we're talking, well, right now we're talking, we're talking about, about assault rifles. That's what I'm saying. Right. I, I want to be clear okay. exactly what we're talking about. Again, the overwhelming majority of Americans... Over 75% does not believe that we should have these weapons of war on our street. So how do you get them off the street? So, so you, you have a mandatory buyback program. A mandatory buyback program. <laughs> and if that's not enough, if that's not enough, Beto O'Rourke is now livid that Pete Buttigieg is ahead of him in the polls. And Pete Buttigieg has come out with his own gun control nonsense. And... Uh, Beto O'Rourke is accusing him of poll testing. Before we get there, though, one more, one more Cory Booker uh, quote I forgot that I had. Cory Booker wants this. If you do not have a federal licensing program, this is what you're creating. Because licensing works. States that have done it have seen dramatic, precipitous drops in violent crime. Connecticut did it, saw a 40% drop in gun violence and a 15% drop in suicides. But the problem is states that have licensing programs, so many of their guns come from states that don't. As, as Shannon Watts says, the head of Moms Demands Action says, we've created a system where you're only as safe as the state near you with the least restrictive gun laws. And so you live in cities like mine? Well, they've done studies on the violence in Chicago, the violence in New York, the violence in my community. About 87% of the guns do not come from our states. They come from states that do not have gun licensing. So here's my message to Democrats. The public is already there. Well over 75% of Americans support gun licensing. This isn't about leadership. Leadership is bringing people along with you. The public is already there. You should not be a nominee for, from our party that can seriously stand in front of urban places and say, I will protect you if you don't believe in gun licensing. This isn't about leadership. This is about you standing with the overwhelming majority of Americans on gun licensing. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, you notice how he, he talks about Newark, he talks about Chicago, and people leave those areas to buy their guns in places where it's easier to buy guns, at least he says. Um, you know, that's funny. Um, my gun's got to be shipped to an FFL. If I buy it out of state, it needs to go to an FFL in my state for me to be able to get it. That's just, just details. Um, but why don't the places out of state where all the guns are being bought have the gun violence that those communities have, huh? Hmm? I mean, he doesn't want to talk about that. Why, why don't they have the gun violence issues? That other places have I I I wonder, I wonder, I I wonder. Now, now there's Beto O'Rourke who's really upset with Buttigieg on this whole issue. What Pete has been saying is that a mandatory buyback is the shiny object that is distracting us. How in the world can you say that to march for our lives? How, how can you say that to survivors of mass shootings across this country? How can you say that to the majority of Hispanics? in America, certainly in Texas, who fear that they will be the victims of a mass shooting inspired by racism and hatred that's been welcomed into the open by this president and has been armed with weapons of war. So uh, I, I was really offended by, by those comments. And I think he represents a kind of politics that is focused on uh, poll testing and focus group driving and triangulating and listening to consultants before you arrive at a position. Yeah, listening to consultants coming to his position. Beto now, by the way, Beto has come out and said that the Second Amendment itself needs to go. He's finally gotten where we all knew he was going to go eventually. Uh, he wants the Second Amendment gone. Now, you know, it related to this, New York City has a new law. Uh, the New York City uh, Human Rights Commission has decided that it is against the law now to use the term illegal alien. The guidance from the New York City Commission on Human Rights uh, defines discrimination on the basis of perceived, perceived, or actual immigration status and national origin under the New York City Human Rights Law and public accommodations, employment, and housing, and uses the term illegals. The guidance states, quote, harassing or discriminating against someone for their use of another language or their limited English proficiency and threatening to call ICE on a person based on a discriminatory motive are considered to be in violation. So if you suspect someone is an illegal alien and you say you're going to call ICE, even though you're complying with the federal law, you violated New York law and you can be fined $250,000. But wait, there's more. Ryan Kleckner on Fox News points out what's going to happen in the fallout of this law. The three worst you already started to mention, they're going to make manufacturers liable. That's scary. They're going to maybe bring back the assault weapons ban and, like you said, register them under the National Firearms Act. But there's a third one that we can talk about, which is anyone who's guilty of a misdemeanor hate crime can lose their right to possess firearms forever. So manufacturer liability, we know that's absurd. You're not going to hold BIC lighters liable for arson. Doing that to the firearms industry would absolutely cripple the industry as we know it, and I think would, that's the plan. Would, would, so anyone who's convicted of a misdemeanor hate crime, <laughs> yeah. I, don't even, I didn't even know that was a category, but okay, loses his right to the Second Amendment. He's no longer covered by the Second Amendment. Yeah. I, but I he's, still allowed, he's still allowed to vote? So you're sure. not allowed to go deer hunting, but you can choose my president. How does, how does that work exactly? 
Well, the people that are coming up with these rules want votes. There's one reason. But here's something scarier. I could talk about a potential slippery slope and say, oh, no, we shouldn't do that about hate crime because who gets to decide what's a hate crime? Well, we have a perfect example right now. If Biden goes to New York City and calls someone an illegal alien, he can lose his right to guns forever under his own proposal because that's that's a hate crime now. It's a scary world. Well, his federally funded bodyguards would still be armed with high capacity magazines. So I think, you know, he's all set. And that, that's kind of the point is the people making these rules Absolutely have literally right. no intention of abiding by them at all. They would never give up their right to firearms because that would be scary. Exactly right. They, they, they can never answer the hypocrisy there of, of what's going on. I, I, we've talked about this before. When a politician tells you you don't need a gun, maybe that's time you actually need the gun. Well, maybe, maybe not. I will tell you that these laws in New York City and and elsewhere are starting to show people uh, what progressivism is like, and more and more people are getting disturbed. And, you know, uh, oftentimes the left says they want to be like Europe. There's a court case out of uh, Great Britain that we should probably consider. It has come out. The Daily Wire has this story. Uh, A British court on Tuesday, ruled that belief in the Bible is incompatible with human dignity. The case came uh, related to Dr. David Macarth, who is a Christian who worked as an emergency room doctor for the National Health Service for 26 years. He was fired from his job because he refused to call a biological man a woman. The court's ruling stated, this is an actual quote from the court's ruling, Belief in Genesis 127, that is that God created man, male and female, lack of belief in transgenderism, and conscientious objection to transgenderism in our judgment are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here transgender individuals. Insofar as those beliefs form part of his wider faith, His wider faith also does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society, not incompatible with human dignity, and not in conflict with the fundamental rights of others. In other words, if you believe in Scripture, if you define your worldview based on Christian faith, it is not compatible with democracy, according to a British judge. Ponder that, shall we? Ponder that. This is this is profound. And now in, in New York, they're going to word police you if you call someone an illegal alien, which is actually a legitimate lawful phrase used in the law. If you call someone that, uh, you can be charged with a hate crime and fined $250,000. If you suggest you're going to call Immigration and Customs Enforcement on someone, you can be fined $250,000. Essentially what the left is trying to do is define language and take language and declare up is down and down is up. And and we see this as well, for example, even here in Georgia and elsewhere, and the the hypocrisy of it. So, you know, 
For example, Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams in 2016 both said uh, that one of the hallmarks of, of being crazy and unhinged was refusing to accept an election, that it undermines our elections uh, to refuse to accept the election and to create fictions. Uh, then they, they played word games with the president uh, in that time when the president suggested it would be an illegitimate outcome if he lost. They're saying you, you can't do that. It undermines democracy to do that. Don't, I really believe that there were unprecedented events in this election, the last election, I mean, that were beyond my understanding and nearly anybody else's. When we started talking in the summer of 2016 about the Russians, you know, I think most of the press and the public goes, what is she talking about? Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't go around making excuses. They didn't understand the attack that we were uh, unfortunately suffering. So I, I think now, and here's what I've told all the candidates, I've said, look, you could run the best campaign, you could be the nominee, but you could still lose because, number one, you could lose with voter suppression. Mm -hmm. And you had Stacey Abrams on. Yes. And, you know, she is a champion for let everybody vote. And yeah. at the end of the day, who wins, wins, and who doesn't, doesn't. Mm -hmm. Or you could lose because of hacking and theft of material. There you go. The election was illegitimate. The election was illegitimate. The word games, it's very Orwellian what these people play. Uh, you... You believe in guns, well, suddenly long barrel guns are considered assault rifles and we need to ban the assault rifle. Well, eventually you get to, we need to put you on a gun registry even for your handguns to eventually we need to take away your guns. But don't believe that this stuff will happen here and then suddenly it happens. Uh, you, you have the, the left in their fixation with we need to be all things European. We need to be more cosmopolitan. But no, 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 we're, we're not going to, to do hate crimes here like they do there. And now you call someone illegal alien, well, they're going to round you up and they're going to to fine you $250,000 in Great Britain. Now they're saying um, if you don't believe transgenderism is, is legitimate, well, they're, they're going to tell you that your Christian beliefs are incompatible uh, with, with democracy. You got Jamel Hill, a writer from the Atlantic who was on ESPN, who says forgiveness, like, like this judge and this, this guy showed who his brother was murdered. Well, that that's offensive to forgive. You've got white uh, progressives saying that if forgiving someone for killing a black person is internalizing white supremacy and is wrong. We live in insane in an insane culture, and they point to Donald Trump and they say he's insane, he's the problem. No, Donald Trump is a reflection of the society we have. To the extent Donald Trump is, is something we would prefer he's not, he just reflects society. That is the reality. To the extent people complain, that is, it's just, Donald Trump is a reflection of society. He's the internet comment section, come to life and be elected president. Donald Trump is not a cause. He is a symptom. Society itself has gotten there. Look at the outrage over the Joker movie from progressives. This stuff is, it is the, the logic of an insane asylum. So the Joker movie comes out this weekend and it features the character uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix as a man who is down on his luck, who has trouble relating to women, who slowly descends into madness and who becomes violent and essentially decides that violence is the answer. And you have left-wing critics who have seen this movie who have said, oh my goodness, this is going to inspire more people like Trump voters. This movie is bad. We can't go watch it. I don't necessarily want to watch the movie, 
I don't want to watch the movie because I think that it essentially portrays some level of sympathy. Now, I and again, I haven't seen the movie, so maybe I shouldn't say, but but it, it, it tries to make the Joker relatable. I think the Joker always was intended to be the existential threat. I think the Dark Knight got it right. I don't necessarily want to see this movie. I'll probably will wind up going to see it just to see if my suspicions are right. But everybody says it's, it's dark, it's moody. Uh, there, there are very few, if any, happy elements in it. But you have progressives who have watched this movie and they're outraged saying this is going to give more rise to white guys turning to violence. Oh my gosh, we can't have this. Really, it's a movie. It's a movie. We're supposed to take art for art's sake. We're supposed to look at, at the, the crucifix of Jesus in the jar of urine and say that's art and we should celebrate it as art. We're supposed to look at the guy who superglued the toilet to the wall and say, my goodness, that's amazing art. But you go to a movie and you say, oh, we can't have this. No, 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 no. We can't have this white guy loses his mind and going on a violent tear. No, we can't have that. Apparently, we're not allowed to have anything unless the less let the unless the left wants it these days, and they don't want anything except stuff that advances a progressive agenda, and they're willing to twist words. They're willing to make you register your guns. They're willing to silence you. They're willing to drive you from the street corner because they can't actually win the debate for hearts and minds. They've got to shut you up to do it. And again, that's why I believe community is so important. You've got to surround yourself with people who share your worldview so that your children understand you're not alone, so that they understand there are other people who agree because the left is trying to silence it all so that your children never hear these views that you have coming from anyone else. You got to build community, folks. You got to build community. I, I got to say, the media, I mean, they're really just outraged right now. Look, 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 the president wants China to investigate Hunter Biden. Look, he said it himself. It's happening in plain sight. It's a crime. It's crime. It's crime. You know, I realized the president said China needs to look at Joe Biden. What the media is missing is that the president doesn't actually believe he can get China to investigate Joe Biden. What the president recognizes, believes, and understands is that he can force the media, by doing this, to actually say, what did Hunter Biden do in China? There have been a series of articles out in the last few weeks about how Hunter Biden in China, it's far more dubious what he did in Ukraine. And this is the president trying to execute a media strategy. You don't have to be a genius to understand this is what the president does. He believes he can control his own press and he can steal the narrative, steer the narrative better than anyone. And this is the president trying to steer the narrative to Hunter Biden and what he did in China. It has nothing to do with chi- trying to get the Chinese to investigate. That is the media uh, that is totally sympathetic to the Democrats and believes the worst about the president trying to do that. Now, I want to go back and I want to play this audio real quick uh, from the Democrats in their gun safety. They've had two global warming forums and now they've got a gun one on MSNBC. Listen to this. I want to follow up to something you just said there because you. Come on. Uh, the audio to something you just said there, because, you know, I mean, the, the 94 assault weapons ban, it didn't apply to, to, to weapons that were purchased before 1994. Right. What would you do about the millions of specifically assault weapons right. that are already in circulation? What do you do about those? Well, there are approximately five million to your point, Craig. We have to have a buyback program and I support a mandatory buyback program. It's got to be smart. We got to do it the right way. Um, but. There are 5 million at least, some estimate as many as 10 million. 
And we're going to have to have smart public policy that's about taking those off the streets. But A mandatory gun buyback of 10 million guns. Where are you going to get the money? And then there's Julian Castro. Listen to this. This will blow your mind. That. The other thing is, you know, Craig, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, when I think about Chicago, I also think about Laquan McDonald and the fact that especially so many uh, young black men and young Native American men, Jason Perro is a good example of this, um, you know, fall victim to state violence, to police violence. Police violence is gun violence also. Police violence is gun violence also. we got to regulate that. And then Elizabeth Warren actually said, we need to limit the number of guns a person can Does she have any idea how many guns I have? No, she doesn't because there's no gun registry, which is the point. She actually wants a. She wants to limit the number of guns you can buy, and she said she wants to prevent people, quote-unquote, from bulking up in the middle of a crisis. What on earth? They're drinking their protein, giving their guns protein shakes, steroids? I don't know. But she doesn't want you to buy too many guns, people. She thinks the police should red flag you if you buy too many guns. Man, she'd red flag half the South, would she not? We go out and buy as many guns as we can. You should stockpile guns, I think, personally. We'll talk about this more tomorrow.